This podcast is sponsored by Pax. Whether on water, on land or in the air, Pax bags are both versatile and flexible backpacks that are perfectly suitable for your requirements in the most demanding of environments. Pax bags are highly regarded due to their exceptional performance in pre-hospital and in critical care environments. Renowned for their durability, they endure harsh conditions while providing rapid and reliable access to essential kit. So their well-organized compartments and customizable configurations enhance efficiency in high-stress situations. Pax bags are designed with infection control in mind and are easy to clean and disinfect. Their highly visible colors and reflective strips add quick identification and adherence to quality standards assuring reliability. The versatility of Pax bags caters to a diverse EMS providers, but also delivers vital equipment and durability and ease of use for pre-hospital critical care services globally. I've used Pax bags in a number of critical care situations and they're absolutely excellent. Please see the show notes for further details. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself, Ren Walker. In this episode, we're going to be speaking about the future of military medicine with Major General Tim Hodgetts. So in the conversation, we wanted to examine the current state of play within the UK military medicine. So the demographics of modern military capability, that of deployable World 1, World 2, and indeed World 3 hospitals within the field. We also wanted to examine the lessons learned from recent conflicts and how they might inform military medicine of the future. So we wanted to look at analogues of comparison from the last major British involvement in conflict with Iraq and how innovative aeromedical retrieval, that of, that of Mertz and others, and damage control surgery from seminal cases such as Camp Bastion might inform future care. So we also want to look at the increased trend, trended patterns of non-combatant injury from drone and missile strikes, that of blast injuries, and indeed the ever-present risk of IED insult and injury. Finally, with Tim, we want to just really unpack how we might leverage near-term adaptations of pre-hospital MERT capabilities, so aeromedical capabilities for future deployments. So to do this, I have Major General Tim Hodgetts with me. Tim is the current serving Surgeon General of the United Kingdom Armed Forces. He's also the Master General of the Army Medical Services. He's also the elected chair of the Committee of Chiefs of Military Medical Services of NATO. So his clinical background is a professor of emergency medicine. He originally qualified from Westminster Medical School, commissioned in the Royal Army Medical Corps, and indeed through to his present day role as a Surgeon General. He's also the senior technical authority for all matters or clinical matters in defence. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's fantastic to uh, to have you on. I wondered, Tim, if we could just initially get you to speak to some of the most pressing emergent needs in the UK medical military community at the moment. Yeah, thanks. And what I'd say is that they are the same needs as those of all of our NATO allies, which is to be prepared for casualties at scale in the event of conflict against Russia escalating in Europe. Uh, But noting, of course, there are other flashpoints around the world today with Iran's support to Hamas, Hezbollah and Houthi rebels, Uh, that can destabilise the Middle East and China's threat to subsume Taiwan and destabilise the South China Sea. I think since the end of the Cold War, when the Berlin Wall um, came down in 1989, I was actually in Germany, in Hanover, when that happened, we've all in uh, the NATO alliance been reaping a peace dividend. So our standing armies, our navies, our air forces have all been getting smaller and 
uh, alongside those, our military medical services have been contracting. And in the UK from 1995, we closed all of our independent military hospitals uh, and handed over uh, our dedicated capacity for military patients in, into the NHS. So within the NATO military medical community, which I, I lead, we're doing three principal things. First is that we're pressing for nations to recognise the medical support risks that have evolved over time and specifically since the end of the Cold War. We're pressing nations to reinvest in military medical stockpiles and infrastructure. And that is something that we're doing specifically in the, in the UK. We have the funding to do that. And we're also pressing for nations to enhance their civil military collaboration because it's through civil military collaboration that we'll have our resilience for large scale casualties. And to reassure those who are listening, we have had sort of strong positive effect to start addressing these needs. Tim, that's fantastic. And like you said, it, it adds that civil-mill partnership, adds to the resilience, and like you said, adds to the capacity. But also this, this, there's some fundamental lessons learned that we can bring back into civilian life. So for listeners that might not be aware, could you maybe speak to, so certainly something which has actually informed civilian care quite profoundly, that, that of role one, uh, role two, and role three hospitals? So I think it's fair to say that on the operations in the first decade of this century, in Iraq and Afghanistan specifically, we underwent a revolution in combat casualty care. And I can say this with confidence because I was prof emergency medicine at that time. And I was absolutely in the thick of this, creating new concepts and new curricula courses, new guidelines, new practices, new capabilities of care, such as the Army Team Medic and indeed uh, the modern MERT and also new governance structures to measure our impact. And if anybody listening wants uh, to read uh, the detail of that, if you Googled my name together with Revolution in Combat Care and City University, then you'd find a thesis that you can download and, and have all of the detail and primary references. But to be a true revolution in military affairs, according to the military academic literature, you have to also be able to demonstrate an improvement in outcomes. And we can absolutely show this very profoundly. Indeed, we collected such detailed data from point of injury all the way through to rehabilitation that we could aggressively chase down any indicator of inadequate performance, be that, for example, a time to CT scan, why was that delayed, time to theatre, indicators of coagulopathy, of poor uh, blood clotting or use of pain relief, many, many other performance indicators we could chase down uh, where they were working and where they were not working and, and put in uh, change. And we became so good at trauma care that the newspapers referred to Camp Bastion as the world's leading trauma centre. And this was not without reason. Our outcomes were proven and published to uh, get better and better year on year for 10 years, even though the injury severity was at the same time in parallel getting worse. So this was a double whammy. And our outcomes were better in a field hospital than could be ach achieved in a UK teaching hospital. And that, that's a fact. And on visiting Afghanistan in 2009, the Healthcare Commission, which became the Care Quality Commission, CQC, stated that our military trauma system was exemplary. And they'd never before used that descriptor of any ambulance service or hospital. And they said that the NHS had much to learn, which, of course, 
we all started sharing when we returned to our uh, NHS posts, and we were very much instrumental in helping drive uh, the formation of the first tranche of major trauma centres from 2012. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, the, the, the concept of a major trauma centre, having all the specialisms in one place is, is absolutely fundamental to just at time to definitive treatment and and it's been proven through the empirical literature that actually secondary transfer does kill patients and so having all the specialists in one room absolutely makes sense as as we as we speak about modern warfare tim and as you've inferred earlier could you maybe speak to how modern warfare has sort of informed your thoughts on on the future priorities uh, indeed for the uk military so I believe um, it's an enduring truism that the nature of war is constant. That is the use of lethal force for political ends. But the character of war, how we fight war, changes over time. And it's the same for military medicine, that the nature of military medicine to save life and prevent suffering is a constant. But how we practice medicine changes, and that's influenced by uh, disruptive medical advances or technology and, and drugs and, and also by the cultural norms of the of the day. Although I would also say that in many cases it's actually cyclical and we can learn a lot by studying our history and a, an example there would be topical hemostatics. So in Iraq and Afghanistan we introduced quick clot powder and hemcon uh, gauze in 2006 and then we later switched to cellox uh, gauze as a second generation. But in World War One, they were using sphagnum moss for the same purpose. And, and tourniquets are another example that they were widely used in both world wars, but they then fell out of favour. And we had to re-establish their utility in contemporary conflicts uh, when uh, we issued them to every soldier from 2006. I'd also say that every conflict has a signature injury pattern. And that will force the need to innovate and meet new clinical challenges. And in Ukraine, there's a much higher proportion of upper limb amputees than we've seen before. And there are thousands of these. And this will only encourage innovation in upper limb prosthetics. I think finally on this point, um, as a lesson from state on state conflict with Russia as a, as a, a peer adversary, we've seen a complete disregard for the traditional protections of the Geneva Convention and the Red Cross. We have hospitals, medical transport and clinical personnel all being seen as so-called legitimate targets in order to undermine the moral component of fighting power. Because if as a soldier you think you're not going to be looked after well, then you may not fight as hard. And this is already changing our, our tactics and, and it will absolutely force us to abandon the notion of protection from the Red Cross and rather it will drive us underground quite literally into an underground car park and use camouflage, manoeuvre and dispersion as our tools to protect our facilities, our staff and of course our patients. It's really interesting actually you say that Tim because a number of assets have become the, the the face of war has changed, as you say, and a number of air assets and indeed sea assets, um, military boats and indeed helicopters have become 
quite vulnerable in uh, on the front lines actually because and i think less so from the use of drone warfare but more so from the use of just uh surface to air missiles they're just the advanced technology of uh, of acquisition of targets it's it's really exposed the landscape and indeed tank warfare and, it, and again that that changes the signature as you said of 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 of, of warfare so it's it's particularly um interesting now something i really wanted to just um really pause on was the the asset of the of the mert scheme so the 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 mobile um emergency retrieval teams in in these in these um fluctuating kind of di quite dynamic situations could you maybe speak to the, how we've seen these medical emergency medical uh, retrieval teams sort of improve survival rates from point of wounding and maybe indeed even where you see that their 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 utility in the future Right, so uh, what difference does the MERT make, the Medical Emergency Response Team? This was absolutely a question on all of our lips uh, when we flew those early uh, MERT missions in Afghanistan. And indeed, it's precursor because before MERT, we had IRT, the Instant Response Team, uh, and I flew on that in uh, in the Balkans, in Kosovo in 99, and it was certainly what was flying around in the war uh, in uh, in, uh, in Iraq in uh, in 2003. So let's not forget the uh, the precursor. And as hospital doctors on board these helicopters, we intuitively knew that we were making a difference. But how on earth do you prove it? And the opportunity arose in Afghanistan when we had a US helicopter that was staffed by a nurse, which was known as Dust Off, alongside a US helicopter that was staffed by paramedics. They were called PJs, parajumpers, and that was known as Pedro. And we had a, a UK helicopter with a four-person team that was led by a doctor, and that's MERT, the Medical Emergency Response Team. But the critical factor was that all patients were coming to the same hospital, and in that hospital you had both UK and American surgical teams. So the hospital care could be regarded as a single international standard. So we 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 we, we corrected for that that common standard of hospital care. So any difference in outcome must therefore be related to the uh, the pre-hospital care if you can correct for uh, age injury type and and time to, uh, to to get to hospital and what the comparative uh, data showed and it was johnny morrison who, who did this this study when he was out in the states um was a more than 20 percent survival premium within specific injury severity brackets for those who were treated by mert so for the first time, we could prove that having a doctor on the team actually made a difference. Um, and uh, that, that I would say, is the, is the sentinel data. I mean, that's a phenomenal, that's a phenomenal statistic right there. That's absolutely phenomenal. And, and like you said, you know, having them at point of wounding, but also being able to prove that the intervention bringing forward that intervention that definitive intervention uh say so, you know it, it contributes to survivability is 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 absolutely key and that's an amazing statistic right there so just looking at some of the results and indeed themes that have merged in the data when looking at principal survival within afghanistan could you could you maybe speak to to the emerging themes yeah, of course. And I think the, the first theme I'd like to bring out um, would be our progressive improvement in the ratio between killed in action and wounded in action. So killed in action is when you die before you get to the hospital. And in Vietnam, 
and indeed, actually, in the early part of, of this Russo-Ukraine war, that ratio was around one dead to three injured. But in Iraq and Afghanistan, we stretched this to better than one dead for every 10 injured. And the KIA to WI ratio is a crude measure of the improving performance of, of your trauma system. Um, and importantly, remembering that the vast majority of deaths in our military trauma system are in the pre-hospital phase. So this particularly relates to improved pre-hospital survival. Um, and as I highlighted already, uh, Joan Penn Barwell published that paper that demonstrated the year-on-year -year improvements in survival from 2003 to 2012, despite that paradoxical increase in injury severity. But some data that really stands out for me, and Rob Russell was the lead author uh, on this in 2011, publishing in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. And it was the extraordinary survival from traumatic cardiac arrest on the back of MERT. And these were utterly unprecedented outcomes when you compare them to a sophisticated UK civilian air ambulance, and specifically in relation to hypovolemic arrest. Uh, because that, those outcomes uh, in the civilian setting have, have traditionally been extremely poor, where you've dumped your blood volume at scene and then you try and, and do the resuscitation. But I had cases myself, so I can speak from personal experience. Uh, and what I would say in terms of survival of these uh, traumatic cardiac arrests, uh, the key factor was our ability to resuscitate with blood products far forward as the first fluid that the critically injured uh, received. And we have got uh, the living survivors today. Could I get you to speak to just the adage of damage control surgery as well? Because like you said, it's it's multifactorial and, and iterative in improvements because there's never one magic bullet. There's It's iterative across the domain of, of, of wounding and indeed point of, from point of care onwards. But could you speak to damage control surgery and how that's affected survival and indeed what we've learned in regards to damage control surgery. Yeah, so, so as a pre-hospital care doctor and an emergency physician, it, it pains me to say that however good our pre-hospital care, it is only temporising and it can only buy us time until the surgeon can actually get in and, and turn off the tap and do that definitive uh, procedure. So, of course, damage control surgery uh, uh, affects survival. And what the composite data shows is that the golden hour is still alive and kicking. And there was a paper from 2023, so just last year, uh, from Tracy Shackelford uh, within the US Army Institute of Surgical Research that looked at substantial aggregate uh, uh, case data. And it showed that, yes, you had much better uh, uh, outcomes if you operated within that first hour. The golden hour was originally described by West in the 1970s, and the concept asserts that surgery is optimal if you conduct it within an hour of injury, not an hour of arrival at hospital, uh, an hour of injury. And in the Afghanistan campaign, there was US political direction to deploy the medical assets to reach that standard. Uh, and uh, as, as I say, the, the evidence proves that in modern practice, it still really does make a difference. But there is a, a difficulty in the military setting, and that's that the shorter the mandated timeline, the further forward you have to push your surgical assets to meet that timeline, and therefore the smaller the population 
that that surgical facility will be serving. And that means you need more assets. And because you're placing them further forward, you're placing them at higher risk in a non-permissive environment. So there may be the need to compromise uh, where you have to balance the, the number of assets that you have with the, uh, the, the benefit uh, to, uh, to the patients. Just looking at the rigorous medical training that soldiers receive uh, on the front line, one of the things I learned from London's Air Ambulance was it wasn't necessarily about the complex procedures, but it was almost the foundational basic care, consistently done well, paying attention to the details. And and, and that kind of stayed with me throughout my critical care career. Could, could you speak to the principles of this of sort of the same principles really of rigorous medical training at fa a foundational soldier level. Yeah. So, so in, in 1988, it's a long time ago. I know I'm, I'm baby face. I look uh, younger than I am. Uh, I, I was, I was a junior doctor in the military hospital in Germany. And I recall sitting through the army's first aid training at that time, it was called ATD five army training directed five. And it was terrible. It was delivered in a morning of viewfoils, which some people won't even know what they were, but the acetate sheets projected onto a wall. And at the end of that, I did a multiple choice paper to test my memory. Uh, and this was utterly pointless because a soldier doesn't need to be able to remember lists. What a soldier needs is practical skills um, to, uh, uh, to, to save life. But it was actually about 10 years until I could actively influence this and in 1998, as the first consultant in emergency medicine in the army, and you did hear that right, we didn't have consultants in the army uh, before 1995, um, I, I rewrote the army's first aid as an entirely practical course. And it was supported by a pocketbook of drills. Uh, and if there's any military uh, in, in, the, uh, in the audience, they'll know that as battlefield casualty drills. And we use the same framework of control and act and the treatment drills uh, that we uh, put into BCD today uh, because it works and we've pressure tested it over the last 25 years. Of course, we've refined it. We're in version 11 now, uh, but overall, the principles are the same. And the origins of BCD are actually a contraction of the seven principles that we teach on MINS, Major Instant Medical Management and Support. You know, command, uh, um, safety, communication, assessment, triage, treatment, transport. So control and act, and then the drills after that are a contraction of the MIMS seven principles. Uh, and that's because I wrote the MIMS uh, uh, course or co-authored that with uh, co colleagues in Manchester back in 1992. Uh, and around 2005, my academic team in Birmingham wrote the Army Team Medic Programme. Um, and that follows the same structured principles of battlefield casualty drills, but it adds in some additional skills and equipment. And it was designed for one in four combat soldiers, but it became so popular in Afghanistan with the commanders who could see the impact that this extra training and equipment was, uh, was making far forward, uh, that we were training as many as one in two uh, with this enhanced uh, uh, level of first aid and giving them the extra pouch of first aid equipment. But I would say what really warmed my heart in this, in this period um, was to see now how soldiers were taking first aid seriously. Because before Iraq and Afghanistan, it was always taught as a, 
a sort of a concurrent task at the back of the ranges with poor equipment and nobody really took much at attention to it. Uh, but people could now see, the soldiers could see, this could genuinely save their lives or save the lives of, of, of their buddies. Uh, and that was you know, the elastic field dressing and the tourniquet in particular. Um, and uh, it was so important uh, to, to many that they sourced additional personal supplies uh, prior to deployment. Absolutely, Tim. And, and like you, you said, you know, there, there, there is such adage in in that first point of contact um methodically providing that that um that physical training rather than groups of lists to to apply uh holistic and indeed just uh proven uh, medical training uh, at point of wounding i guess my next question would be around the sequential fashion of putting it all together so mert teams with the education with damage control surgery could you could you maybe speak to because there has been incremental improvements and indeed these interventions in and of themselves have, have improved survivability what, what do you see in any future conflict putting these these three together fundamental education damage control surgery and indeed um far forward um medical um pre-hospital care such as mert teams within medical units and indeed within the wider uk military is there is there is there adage in 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 sort of combining all three and indeed putting all three into practice for future future conflict so all those elements will be there in some form uh, in, in future conflict, we'll, we will definitely learn from the experience we have, but we have to adapt it to the needs of the uh, the future operating environment and just be very wary that the threat that we faced in Iraq and Afghanistan is very different to the threat that we're thinking about today um, in uh, the, the eastern part of Europe and also um, a potential state-on-state, peer-on-peer conflict. So the wars of choice that we fought in the early part of this century were asymmetric so we were much more powerful than the enemy they had relatively few casualties and we enjoyed air superiority so we could very quickly fly to the point of wounding and then take those casualties back quite a distance in a short period of time and then get them through the evacuation chain out the back of the field hospital onto the strategic uh, air med uh, and back to uh, the home country within 24, 48 hours. So a very rapid evacuation chain um, and exquisite management of small numbers of patients. But if we're to think about the current threat, which could be a war with enduring mass casualties day on day, week on week, month on month, as you, as you see in, in Ukraine, and where we're reliant uh, on contested and delayed ground evacuation, our outcomes are going to be poorer and potentially much poorer uh, than we experienced um, in, uh, in, in recent asymmetric conflict. And the quality of care uh, will be reduced and the role of MERT would be questionable, certainly in the air, if you didn't have air superiority. It doesn't mean to say they can't be on another platform. Uh, you can't necessarily project them forward in a, in a land vehicle, but that's uh, a, a very different place to conduct um, sort of clinical examination and, and intervention than the space that you have on the back of a large um, air, aerial platform. But nevertheless, uh, dependent on where we are on the operational spectrum, there will continue to be a rationale for MERT uh, you know, to support focused operations, 
to support non-combatant evacuations, of which we've done a couple in the last year, uh, and potentially humanitarian assistance. So I think we'll have a choice of, of things that we can deploy, uh, but we must also manage expectations of the uh, the, the uh, quality of care that we can deliver in a contested, non-permissive environment. So you spoke to some of the injury patterns we're seeing in the contemporary climates, such as Ukraine, that of majority of upper limb injuries. With the current configuration from a, so a CCP or indeed a, a critical care paramedic or indeed soldier trained to assist a a, a uh, a doctor, indeed, a um, uh, an emergency medicine doctor, um, is is that the, is that current configuration something that will endure over time? So we 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 talked already, haven't we, about um, the quantitative value of adding a doctor to the team? We've we've, we've got some evidence there because you can in, indeed uh, prove better outcomes. But I think there's also a qualitative value of having a, an experienced doctor, you know, consult the emergency medicine, consult the anaesthetics, because they are fully autonomous. They can step outside a protocol or they, they can continue to intervene when the protocol has been exhausted. Uh, and doctors can also comfortably decide when it's safer not to act. If it's anticipated that there's going to be a better outcome by not acting or delaying that intervention until you get to hospital. But I think that only comes from deep experience of also working in the hospital and knowing what the next steps are going to be on arrival at the at the hospital. Uh, so I do hope that doctors will continue to have a role uh, within uh, MERT. But what I also recognise is that we continue to expand the authority the interventional skill le level and the autonomous practice of both nurses and paramedics. Uh, and the benefit of doing both is that it makes for a much more comprehensive and flexible capability. If we can, because when we deploy, you can only rely on the people you've deployed, the, the, the relatively finer assets you've got. And if you can use those people more flexibly, uh, and have empowered them to the the very limits of their professional competence, uh, then we will have a much more powerful clinical force. Just regards to future adaptations or indeed increased capabilities of MER that you'd like to see, is there, is there any indeed either diagnostic interventions or indeed um, clinical interventions you, you'd like to see on the platform? So I think first of all, we've got to continue to incrementally innovate. So there will be new generations of the same equipment that we use that may an, uh, offer some incremental uh, advantage. Uh, An example would be, as I've already brought up, topical hemostatics. So the first generation were pretty crude. Uh, one was a, a powder that uh, could cause burns. That was uh, quick clot powder. Uh, and the other was uh, the Hemcon gauze, which was chitosan, but it was really stiff and difficult to push into the wound. So industry kept innovating, and we've had second generation products, uh, a, a number of those. And indeed, within the UK, there's a, a next generation product, which is coming to market now, which is known as Clotter. So uh, keep, keep an eye on, on that UK-based uh, innovation. Uh, secondly, I think it's about exploiting pre-hospital diagnostics to their full capability. Um, and examples would be uh, portable ultrasound, but there may be other novel imaging uh, that comes to market 
which is robust enough and small and light enough and simple enough uh, to be used um, far forward, either on the ground or in the back of a moving uh, platform, for example, to, um, uh, to, to identify if there is um, uh, yeah, expanding intracranial hematoma. Uh, it's been uh, uh, quite a difficult thing for us to do other than by uh, CT scan. And thirdly, let's not forget blood products um, and the need to access warmed products at scene and in flight. But noting the, the current UK research sort of definitively determined the effectiveness of the various products in this uh, en environment. Personally, I don't need any persuading. Uh, and I've seen the value uh, firsthand many times, but we are going through that validation process now of, uh, of establishing uh, what the best product is uh, for, for the environment. I mean, th there are other interventions as well, some of which remain a little controversial. Raboa uh, would be uh, such a, um, an intervention. Um, so resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. Uh, would I recommend it? Uh, well, I am a trustee of London's Air Ambulance and um, uh, yeah, that is a preeminent civilian MERT equivalent. Uh, and I know that they continue to trial uh, this particular intervention. But if I was to look at the military environment, my perception of effectiveness in our military pre-hospital environment, I think, is is limited. And I would remain to be convinced uh, of the utility of that, um, that that intervention. And I think this, this is important because when there are innovations, we can't say they are necessarily transferable directly from one environment to another. We need to critically evaluate if something that has uh, been developed in the military is actually suitable for the civilian environment and, and vice versa. We should always keep the open mind, uh, but there may be constraints of each environment uh, that suggest uh, where success uh, works in one place, it may not equally work in another. So on that topic, actually, Tim, just looking before we, we move on to maybe some generic principles, find, finally, sort of the, the principle of ECMO in, in a role three uh, um, hospital or field hospital, do, do, do you see that becoming a reality? So I, I think just because we could put ECMO into a field hospital doesn't mean that we should put ECMO into a field hospital. If we have a future low intensity conflict, and there's a high political and social casualty aversion and intolerance of military deaths, then maybe that's the environment where putting another enhanced intervention uh, would uh, be justifiable. But for medium or large scale conflict where you've got high or overwhelming casualty numbers, then no, it's not going to be appropriate in terms of the resource that you expend per patient. Absolutely. And like you said, it's fundamental to 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 know the, where the real adage for the intervention is and and indeed whether it's 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 um, worth doing at all. But could you speak to just on a wider scale what the future priorities for the UK military medical um, community is? Is it expansion? Is it upskilling of general general skills within the, the soldier base? What, what do you foresee to be the priorities? So. A lesson from COVID was that the supply chain is really unreliable, particularly when everyone is demanding against a single source. And, and PPE was a really clear example. But the same is for many medical consumables. 
Uh, and what uh, what we've seen again in Ukraine is that nations are all trying to donate the same consumables from the same providers. So in terms of our overall system uh, effectiveness for the future, one solution is to hold more stock. Uh, and that's exactly what defence is now funding so that we have an enhanced medical stockpile of, of, of consumables should the supply chain be contested in the future. Uh, a second solution is that we decide there might be some things that we need to make ourselves. And that's referred to as sovereign capability. And there's one uh, critical item, freeze-dried plasma, where the international stocks are very limited. Indeed, we get our stocks from Germany and France. So we've elected to create a sovereign capability for freeze-dried plasma. Uh, and this is being funded by the army. So last year, the army signed a contract with industry and NHS blood and transplant for this product to be made in the UK. Now, of course, there will be a spillover benefit into the, the wider civilian community, but the imperative is because of our concern of needing this product for far forward austere environments and not being able to get hold of it uh, in a larger conflict where uh, uh, many other uh, customers are demanding against it. And in terms of upskilling soldiers, I think there is a real sound log logic because we've said that the vast majority of combat deaths are in the pre-hospital setting and they're going to be in you know, the early minutes of the, uh, of the injury pathway. And if we're going to make a disruptive difference to outcomes in the future, I think it's going to be through novel interventions that are delivered far forward, potentially by soldiers, either to themselves or to their buddies. And one such intervention that we're working on is a tranexamic acid auto-injector for individual issue. Um, others, well, we may not yet know them. Uh, and we certainly didn't anticipate quick clot and hemcon or adult interosseous when they first hit the, the, the market this century. But what we have to be is good and early innovation adopters so that when something does pop onto our radar and we can see its utility, that we can rapidly bring it into service uh, and uh, get a, a, an incremental advantage. Yeah, absolutely makes sense, Tim, uh, from a number of uh, reasons. Absolutely so. Um, so just a final question, really, um, before we come into land, and that would just be around just any fundamental take on points that you advocate in practice? Um, you've mentioned a number already, but is, is there anything you could sort of leave listeners with? So I'm quite often asked, what was the one thing that made the most difference uh, to outcome of all the changes that were made in that revolution uh, in combat casualty care? And you might think it was tourniquets and they were important, important but I'd say no, not tourniquets. You might think it was some of the training BCD or the battles uh, revision we did in 2005, Battlefield Advanced Trauma Life Support, uh, where we introduced the CABC paradigm for the first, first time. And I'm very proud of that. But again, I'd say, no, it's not that. What I'd say it was is, and it's a bit dry, but it was our data exploitation and our aggressive clinical governance because we changed week by week, month by month, because we could prove what worked. And we drove this on a weekly joint theatre clinical case conference, joining up all the deployed units with the base hospital uh, in Birmingham, uh, identifying what had gone well 
and what needed to change here and now, not in six months, not in a year from a retrospective uh, report, but direct to the people who are providing care on the ground. This is what you need to do differently to, 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 to get a better outcome. So next time, those on this audience, uh, uh, who I'm assuming are largely from a pre-hospital setting, next time they're out filling their uh, um, pre-hospital report form, do remember that someone, somewhere, and in the military setting, it's likely back in Birmingham, they're going to be pouring over this. They're going to be aggregating the data and seeking the evidence for what makes a difference in outcome, because that's what will change policy and future practice. Tim, listen, thank you. That was that's absolutely profound, and couldn't agree more with 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 that. Listen, I really just want to thank you for your time today. It's been um, hugely insightful for myself, and uh, really beneficial for listeners. So, thank you so much. You're listening to the Pre Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.